Shalom, everyone. Uh, I'm Trey Buckman, and this is the very, very first episode of To Be Brief. Um, it's a story podcast about the three of us talking about things that are interesting in under 10 minutes. And uh, here are my two co-hosts. Uh, I'm Nick Castellano. Uh, I am Trey's brother-in-law and uh, Drake's son-in-law. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, nothing about this is going to be brief. <laughs> nothing about us is brief. It's a lawyer pun, in case you didn't. That's true. That one. <laughs> but we're happy to be here yelling at everybody. Uh-huh. So This is Drake Buckman. I'm very happy to be here. I am excited. I'm here with my son-in-law, Nick, and my son, Trey. And the idea and format for the show is we are going to, uh, during the week, we record stories that we think Lunch. are interesting. Yeah, thank you. He's <laughs> a little late into this. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably a little ambitious. Uh-huh. So during the month, we'll be researching and recording stories that we find personally interesting. They can be from a wide variety of sources, and they can be about anything. There are no real, um, there are no real limits on anything we want to do here, and uh, in a wide variety of formats. So every month, you'll be presented with at least three stories, maybe some guests, maybe some other things. But we just want it to be as interesting as possible. And we have not heard them, so we're going right. in totally fresh, no idea what's happening. Right. right. So the very right. first time you will hear the stories that are presented, we would have hear, heard them, and then uh, yeah. we can all talk. about Although them. we will not be have somehow recorded and then listen to it at the same time, so we are not time travelers, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no. Yeah. If the Avengers taught us anything, it's too that. complicated. Time travel too is just too hokey yeah. to pull off. Anyways, exactly. here is our first story, which I believe is by our illustrious Nick Castellano about some unknown topic. So, Nick, what do you got for us? Coming in hot. Uh, I can't tell you yet. You're just going to have to experience it as it comes. I'm okay. Sorry. Makes yeah. sense. All right. Let's All right. Look ready. forward to it. Heck yeah. I curled my fingers into a fist, knees bent, eyes forward. Right foot forward, right jab, jab again, left straight, right hook. I hit with combination after combination for what felt like five minutes. But in reality, it was probably more like 30 seconds. Uh, I was inflicting (laughs) tremendous damage to my opponent, the air. Or rather, the image of Dolph Lundgren on the TV screen in front of me. So tall, so blonde, so Russian. Those dastardly Russians. The arrogance, the pompousness, the steroids. Once that first guitar note from Hearts on Fire rips across a landscape shot of the wintry Russian countryside, I was entranced in what I consider to be the best training montage ever recorded. This was a typical Saturday afternoon at my Nano and Nana's house when I was eight or nine years old. They had a habit of videotaping movies that played on TV, and after a while their floor-to-ceiling bookcases in the living room were filled with taped VHS movies. The time period was Stallone's golden age. He had Rocky IV, Demolition Man with Wesley Snipes, uh, Cliffhanger, uh, one of my favorites, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, <laughs> Tango <laughs> and Cash. I think that went to cons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my Nano and Nana, being the upstanding Italian-American grandparents they were, had all of these taped. Stallone became a personal hero of mine, especially when Nana told me that he got so strong from eating all of his pasta each night and I certainly didn't need any extra motivation there. <laughs> For those who haven't deigned to watch this cinematic classic, I'll give a brief rundown. This is the fourth Rocky movie. So at this point in the saga, he's thoroughly conquered and befriended his once arch nemesis, Apollo Creed. He's beaten Mr. T to a pulp, which was no small feat. And he's become the reigning U.S. boxing champion, leaving him happy, healthy, and rich. The movie starts off with him enjoying retirement with his loving wife, Adrian and their young son. The year is 1985, the tail end of the Cold War, a time when Russia was trying to assert themselves into the sports world as physically superior to all other countries. Enter new 
Russian boxing powerhouse, Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren. Drago is defeated in, or undefeated in Russia, but wants to make a play for the American title. Rocky's former arch-nemesis turned best friend Apollo Creed, uh, who's been retired since the events of Rocky II, becomes personally offended by Drago's uh, entrance into the boxing world and sees this as his opportunity to fight Rush on the front lines. He arranges the fight with Drago and has Rocky working in his corner. Once the fight starts, however, things turn ugly. They it sure be- do. <laughs> it becomes Lundgren's fault, though. It totally is. <laughs> it becomes immediately apparent that Drago has almost superhuman strength, that Apollo is over the hill, and Rocky has no idea how to be a cut man. Drago brutally beats Apollo, landing a knockout punch so severe that it kills him dead in the ring. Rocky <laughs> is devastated and feels a personal responsibility for not stopping the fight before Apollo's death. Drago then embarks on a smear campaign against Rocky, claiming that Rocky's not the true champion until he fights him. Rocky, in a very stoic but melancholy way, responds by not only agreeing to fight Drago, but agreeing to do so in Russia on Christmas Day without clearing it with his wife first. That's the worst part. Mistake. (laughs) Adrian is just naturally apoplectic, (laughs) not just because of the date and location of the fight, but also because... She's genuinely afraid that Rocky could die in the ring like his friend. In previous films, she's taken the role of Rocky's inspiration. So when she tells Rocky, you can't win this one, uh, the movie really takes a dramatic turn. Yeah. Rocky's no longer the warm, bouncy, optimistic champion he once was. Uh, instead, he's withdrawn, despondent, and quiet, but laser-focused on one thing, destroying Drago, the man who's killed his friend. True Shakespearean hero. True. <laughs> Rocky travels to Russia and embarks on the greatest training montage of all time. He trains in the frozen wilderness of the Soviet Union. He chops firewood. He does deadlifts, uh, lifting carriages filled with his trainers. He goes for runs uh, that takes him up entire mountains in the snow and does hundreds of pull-ups at a time, all while being surveilled by the KGB. Meanwhile, Drago is also training his butt off, but in a very high-tech facility using the best equipment available. The contrast is meant to symbolize, I think, uh, the power struggle between humans and technology, uh, but I could have just seen this movie way too many times. (laughs) In one not-so-subtle shot, a Russian trainer uses a syringe to inject an unknown substance into Drago's arm. This is vitamins. (laughs) B12 shot. Vodka. (laughs) Mid-training montage... Quick break in the training montage. Adrian surprises Rocky and visits him in Russia. They have a classic husband-wife talk. They make amends and fall back in love all over again. Once Rocky has Adrian back in his corner, all bets are off. The montage starts back up with the classic song, Hearts on Fire, ripping in the background, and Rocky starts training like never before. He becomes so strong and fast that even the Russians spying on him are like, damn, that's impressive. (laughs) We may not like this guy, but maybe he's earned our respect. Cut to fight night. The Russian crowd is obviously very pro-Drago. Rocky is viciously booed during his introduction, but is unfazed. When they meet to touch gloves, Drago hits Rocky with the epic line, I must break you. (laughs) The fight can be summarized as follows. Drago is super strong and hits Rocky really hard a lot of times. So true. Rocky takes a brutal beating, uh, but through pure determination and motivated by his friend's death, marches on. Rocky is strong, too, and little by little starts hitting Drago more and more. 
Drago responds with commentary like, he is like piece of iron. <laughs> <laughs> Delivered perfectly. <laughs> Slowly, members of the Russian crowd become so captivated by Rocky's resilience that some actually start cheering for him. Again, little by little, the crowd turns in Rocky's favor, just as the fight does. After an epic final round, Rocky finally knocks Drago down, then out. In the culmination, Rocky gives a speech to the Russian crowd after the fight, explaining that maybe it was better that just he and Drago fought instead of uh, the U.S. and Russia, and that after this fight and after the treatment he received from the crowd, uh, he believed that maybe the Russians were decent after all, and this Cold War was just a big misunderstanding. Yeah. The crowd rejoices at these words, and the movie ends there. Uh, a qu- couple quick notes on this movie in particular and the Rocky franchise. Uh, Rocky Four specifically, was the highest grossing sports movie ever for 24 years until it was overtaken by The Blind Side in 2009. Uh, while critical reception of the film was mixed, uh, the film was a massive success with the public, uh, at least in America, probably not so much in the USSR. Um <laughs> So safe to say, I was not alone in my admiration of Stallone, and he did receive plenty of actual critical acclaim. The original Rocky movie, which Stallone uh, not only starred in, but wrote himself, won the Oscar in in the year it was released for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Editing. Uh, Stallone was nominated that year for Best Actor and Screenplay. Uh, That original Rocky film spawned six sequels, resulting in one of the only sports movie franchises and on top of it all, there's a frickin' bronze statue of Rocky, <laughs> a fictional character, standing in Philadelphia today. It's the best that Philadelphia could offer. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried a cheesesteak? <laughs> all of this, I think, raises several questions. First, is all the hype deserved? I mean, is Stallone's character uh, and portrayal of Rocky Balboa worthy of eight, mo- eight movies and a 42-year uh, movie franchise? Should he, of all the characters in all the movies, be the only fictional character, at least that I'm aware of, with a full-on life-size bronze statue in real life? Second, and this is where we really start getting controversial, should Rocky IV be considered one of the best movies of the series? Uh, Rocky really tackled some tough issues in the film. Uh, He essentially ends the Cold War, which, as we all know, is historically accurate. (laughs) And... Uh, you know, Apollo Creed dies. Big moment. Uh, he has probably his toughest relationship moment uh, with Adrian. And uh, we see him sacrifice his future mental health all in the name of uh, revenge. Is this over the top or is it quintessential Rocky greatness? Mm. The floor is open. I have immediate thoughts. First of all, you're wrong. <laughs> Shocker. <There's> a... <laughs> in every way. In Milwaukee, there is a statue called the Bronze Fawns of the Magnificent Man that is Henry Winkler's Fonz right at the edge of a bridge that is, I guess, the best Milwaukee has to offer to the world. So. Uh, it's completely undeserved. <laughs> compared, to, compared to Rocky, <laughs> I suppose. Um, There's also the Tim Tebow slavish That's a real altar. person, okay. though. That is a real person. <laughs> a real that is human. true. That is a real that person. Is true. Okay. That's true. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you would say that about Henry Winkler because, you know, Winkler and Stallone grew up together in a sense. They were young actors together. They did, and I think Winkler mm-hmm. was a producer on a lot of if not all of, the Rocky movies. Yeah. Iron slash bronze. There's a movie called Lords of Flatbush. Have you ever seen that? It's I've heard Hen- of it. It's Henry Winkler and uh, Sylvester Stallone. And they're like 20 years old. And, and they, it, they it's kind of like a 1950s kind of thing. And it's the very first movie. And the big joke from that was 
Um, did you hear about the guy with five penises? Is there is was that before or after his his porn went still under? No, that was after. And the and the joke Henry Winkler says is yeah, his pants fit like a glove. <laughs> that was the big joke. So anyway, yeah. That's good. So, well, there you go, bronze statue. Bronze yeah, but the, the, and you also <laughs> forgot the most important part of Rocky Four, which way. is the robot. You the, the best part of Rocky Four. Did I not mention? The uh, conflict yeah. between humans and technology. And technology. In case you yes. don't know, in case you don't know, um, what's 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 the uncle's name or the brother's uncle name? Tony. Uncle Tony. No. Uncle yeah. Tony. Is it Tony. Tony? It's Tony. Okay. Well, the the schleppy um, uncle who is a failure all the time and spends and wastes all their money. Yes. Um, is purchased a robot uh, butler, which eventually transforms into his girlfriend. Back up. It was purchased for him <laughs> for his birthday as his birthday present. Rocky actually bought the robot. Um, now, Polly, no, sorry, Uncle Polly. Yeah, Tony, yeah, that's wow. what I thought. Wow, you know this is a Rocky expert. It's actually, I have an Uncle Tony, it's weird. But um, <laughs> Polly uh, does fall in love with the robot right. in the story. It's, it's really, it's like ex machina. It's like ahead of its time. It is. In the way that it thinks about it. So what's your opinion on Stallone? You know, he, he did, he came up with, he's that generation that was with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. He was as, you know, Henry Winkler, who was you know not Italian, but mm-hmm. was they all came up together generationally and... He kind of, I mean, you can imagine having your first script that you're typing out in the slum apartment you're living in with your daughter or your, your kid. You have no money mm-hmm. and everybody wants to buy it, right? That was the story. There was, I think, a bidding war at some point. Yeah. Yeah, but Rocky, he, the, the studio he chose, he chose only because they accepted his condition, which was uh, they had to let him star in the movie so he, he turned he, his career just... right so he took the risk on himself and it worked out but you can imagine i always think about you know he his first movie out of the shot he only writes in it he stars in it he becomes a huge star because i remember i was a kid when rocky one came out and it came mm-hmm. out like an explosion in 76 or 77 and everyone loved it i remember watching in the theaters but then at the some same years as Star Wars did Star Wars yeah yeah he came out in the same yeah I think they did crazy 76 77 but good year for movies but then you're like well do you want to end up being Al Pacino from that generation with the choices he made a Robert De Niro or do you want to be Sylvester Sloan because I guarantee you Sylvester Sloan's wealthier oh yeah he's he's an he's is is he more iconic well probably i would think people will be watching those rocky movies in the future my generation certainly know who 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 stallone Stallone is is more than they would know de niro or pacino like they know who they are but like of the garlic muncher 70s guys who came up for sure he's the big one that's like certain i was just waiting for for trey to use his first racial slur (laughs) i saw that i was like that's that seems a little uh that seems a little rough there Uh yeah well Anyway. Get ready! I told you, take your take yeah. your moms away from this. Because well, think about because think about there is the Rocky franchise, but there's also the Rambo franchise, right? Which, right. which had a movie come out just this year. Um, Did you see that? Was that good? No, I never saw it. Oh, oh. Everything <laughs> past Rambo one is <laughs> waste of time. It's dicey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway. what do you, what about Rambo two then? Uh, Rambo two, I think, was more in the uh, I think it won more Razzies than actual. Because uh, you know Rocky two is i think a fantastic sequel i agree and yeah. and to me it's it's a done story and i guess that's my point if you're if you're sylvester stallone do you say i made these two amazing movies i'm a huge star i can do anything i want and i'm going to do rocky three or do you say i'm going to do something else rocky three is my favorite one rocky four and five are like in my See, opinion this is the why worst I, ones. I told you this is where we're starting controversial okay nick first of all you need to take the tone down just a little bit before you get to rocky dramatic. three <laughs> mr t <laughs> He's the best villain, and I'm going to explain why. 
I mean, no, no, for real. Okay, Rocky Four is a joke. It's no, I understand the connection, oh. but Rocky Four is like. It, it, there's a reason why mixed reception from critics would be something that Rocky Three's got Thunderlips in it. Hulk Hogan, <laughs> he immortal. He's got Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. What? I get it. How many bar debates has that? Did that answer? Wrestler versus boxer. Sure. Right. I'd also like to say that um, you're disagreed with on both sides. So critically, uh, the critics would certainly say the best Rocky is Rocky One. I agree. Won the Oscar for I best picture. I completely agree. America I, says the best Rocky was Rocky oh, Four. Well, okay. Based on box office, so <laughs> well, I'm gonna nobody America agrees with you. <laughs> I'm going to oppose the entire United States opinion right now. Okay. Here's so what I'm say. no, no, no. I want to I get my I want to get my Mr. T in here. I want to uh, say why Mr. T is the absolute. I pity the fool. Yeah, he pities the fool. <laughs> Listen, Rocky is made by the people he his opponents of. The reason why Rocky One is so good is because Apollo, Apollo. is the exact opposite of Rocky. Rocky yeah. is insecure rocky is young rocky is unknown apollo is boisterous and he's loud and he's super confident he's muhammad ali good he's foil very he is i think good. he was modeled after muhammad right. ali and he's yeah. he's yeah. that loud boisterous kind of guy and yeah. that's great and then in one and two you see rocky overcome that he learns confidence yep. without getting too arrogant which is the always the flaw right of a rocky character zero arrogant, hubris you're gonna lose yeah. right and the real benefit of Mr. T is that now Rocky is the arrogant one. Rocky is the one who's resting on his laurels. Rocky is the one who's too overconfident. And Rocky is just someone who is completely gone. For that young, scrappy kid who was, like, busting up guys for mob bosses is totally gone. Yeah. And all that's left is, is the same guy Apollo used to be, except less entertaining to watch. And, you know, Mr. T True. shows up. He's young. He's strong. And he's not Apollo. He's someone who stands there and just hits. Same as Rocky. And it's a younger, meaner version of Rocky. So it's so it's like a dark reflection of what Rocky could be. No, I think it's a I think he's the, the, like the anti Apollo. Like Apollo's yeah. a gentleman, he's educated, right. you know, he's stylish and I mean even his name is Clubber Lang. <laughs> so like right, you know yeah. and, and Mr. T had been a thug in real life. He had been a bodyguard and he had been an enforcer and he was that kind of guy. And uh you know, he, that's different. Then, to me, Rocky Ford really took the political side. That's where Stallone seemed to say, "I'm going to embrace this populist <laughs> Russian idea," which was really, if you're trying to sell movie tickets, works. And it's a it's a very like patriotic mm-hmm. uh, thing, you yeah. know. And and I think it's very interesting. But let me ask you something: When you were growing up, um, Rocky was a hero of yours. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, were you were you like can was like little Nick and the were you and your cousin sparring and stuff like what was? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, so uh, for the for the listeners, I have three cousins. Two are older. We're just um, delightful people, by the way. Absolutely <laughs> they delightful. they are. Two two are older. One is younger, but we all kind of grew up together, and it was four boys at my grandparents' house. It's so uh, fun. Often. And I mean, obviously, there was a lot of fighting. Um, not like we were mad at each other, but just like physically, just trying, just beating each other up right, for sure. fun, as you do. Yeah, right. And, and um, so, yeah, there was a lot of Rocky. I mean, the way this worked out for me, Rocky Four was the first Rocky I saw. Whoa, oh. that's weird. Yeah. So you didn't know the backstory? No idea what the backstory was. Didn't care about the backstory. Um, and frankly, I think that went on for at least a, a couple of years where. 
Rocky Four was the only Rocky to me. When did you first hear there was a Rocky Three or Rocky Two? Yeah, when you first watched Rocky One, that must have blown your mind, right? Like, well, uh, the thing is, when I when I went back and I rewatched one, two, three, and then you know five subsequently, <laughs> un- unfortunately, uh-huh. you had to force um, yourself through that one. Yeah, yeah. Rocky Balboa. I was still a little bit Balboa too was, young. Balboa was good. Balboa wasn't bad. Yeah, um, I was still a little bit too young to appreciate. I think uh, the quality of Rocky One. It wasn't until I was older. When I rewatched Rocky One for you know like the fifteenth time, that I was like, wow, that's an actually good movie. Right. You know that's that's a solid movie. Um, so yeah, so Rocky Four, and that could that could play a part in it too. My bias for Rocky Four could be because it was to me the first Rocky. Right. How about the fact that he he does all of his workouts in the winter in Philadelphia in a heavy gray sweatsuit, right. with Chuck Taylor Converse's on. That's yeah. that that's he's it's running like around. Ridiculous. Yeah, like that's the thing where it's like I get the the like drama of it, but like it's it, the KGB agents are like slipping behind him and they're not able to like keep up. Oh, you're talking Amazing. about Rocky Four. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's yeah. so true. But I'm he did right. do that. You know, it wasn't like literally leaving the Russians behind. Yeah. Like that's actually what he's doing. How about the right? Mikhail Gorbachev lookalike that makes the appearance? At the end? <laughs> they really do. Yeah, that's they the, really do. He makes it. Wanted because... guy with wine stain yeah. on his forehead. I'll tell one more very brief story. So, in reading about Rocky Four for this episode, I read a story that the Russians released this story into the news media in America about a young Russian girl who's like 12 years old who's traveling to America in the mid 80s and they decide to go see Rocky Four in the movie theater because she's like, oh, people from my country are in this movie. And so well, I'm going to watch this one. And she is just uh, horrified at the portrayal <laughs> of Russians <laughs> and wrote about it in her diary. And then somehow the diary made it to, you know, uh, the Soviet Union we elite who then released it into right. the news yeah, media. This discovered diary of right. girl. <laughs> so frankly, I think, you know, if you really think about how that breaks down, that is the Russian propaganda machine oh, yeah. releasing a news. supposed twelve years old twelve year old's right. diary to the American news media. To They're looking to influence right. our appreciation of this movie. That does nothing but bolster right. their portrayal right. in Rocky Four. Right. I mean, to be fair to the Russians, which I know that's probably not something <laughs> I should say, but like to be fair to the Russians or the Soviets specifically in this situation, at the end of it they literally are like, you know what? The Americans are right. I think that we should root for the Americans. Like that's what's happening at the end of the of like they the start chanting McDonald's. Right. <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> it's like mm, yeah. oh, it, it is it is at some point where I can see where the insult of it. It's like if they if you if that was reversed, like if Dolph Lundgren was like, there was like a franchise of like Dolph Lundgren playing like yeah. this Russian Rocky and then he rises up and then Stallone shows up and then he's like, at the end, they're in America and they start turning the Ivan, Ivan at the end. We I would mean, be yeah. like, mm, I don't know if that's like that. Yeah, but I, I mean, I got to pull the old guy card here. You guys literally don't remember. No, it, no the Soviets were that cartoonish. They really were. I had a friend that, this is a very brief story. We had my senior year in high school, which is 1986, which is right in the middle of, of yeah, this sure. rocky time. Okay, yeah. that's that's like, that was the time. This is 1986, not that long ago. And it, even though it seems like it. 34 years. Uh, right, okay. <laughs> but uh, there was a Rolling Stone magazine. My friend was 18 years old, went to Russia on this tour, and the Rolling Stone magazine had Born in the USA on it. It was when the Bruce Springsteen album came out and blew up. And it was a picture of basically just like an American flag with Bruce Springsteen on it. It said Born in the USA. And it was a Rolling Stone cover. So he brings it with him into customs. And they go, this is a true story, goes to Moscow. And the entire group, they, they root through it. These guys in uniforms go through all their bags and make them dump them out. And they sit there for five hours in the airport while the Rolling Stone magazine is translated. 
Wow. Okay. And then, you know, they were literally, you know, you would go there and people would literally were trying to buy these kids jeans off their bodies for rubles, which were worthless. And ever, and it really, I mean, they were that cartoonish. It was, you know, the, it was crazy, sure. you know? Wow. I think we like to become the worst version of ourselves. Like there's that funny thing where, you know, we would see the Russians and we want to do exactly the opposite. So it's like you would have that. I mean, in the 80s, there was literally the, like, greed is good thing. So you guys, like, wandering around, they're like, I'm going to steal as much money from poor people as possible. So I think there's, like, a... Mm -hmm. I'm not equivocating. Obviously, one side is clearly better in every way. But I'm just saying, like, there's a there's a thing where, you know, you have a clear enemy. And I think you lean into the things that make you different really hard. Yeah, the funny thing about Stallone, too, is, is the guy's... He's older than I am, so he's... In, I think he's in his late 60s, early 70s, but the guy's still in magnificent shape. And the question always is, is how does that happen and how does he maintain that? He could do a porn right now. Totally <laughs> Never really thought of it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really go there. I'm sure people would watch it. <laughs> yeah, I think people would definitely people watch, would it. watch it. Sure, I think people would. Yeah. That's funny. I well, I, I think that that's, a, I think that that's, that's a very, very good analysis, Nick. I can see young Nick battling it out. Would you always cast yourself as Rocky? Well, duh, yeah. Right. But were your cousins, you did, did your, you have older cousins, right? Yes. Did your older ones ever say, no, you're going to be... Apollo. You're going to be you're Apollo, gonna be or you're going to be... Clubber. Uh, Clubber. <laughs> was there ever any of that? No. Or Tommy Gunn. Not really. What is his name? Tommy Gunn. Tommy Gunn? Yeah, Tommy Gunn. Don't even... That's blasphemy. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's hilarious that your grandmother said, eat your pasta, and you can grow up to be like that. That's great. Yes, she did. There was always motivation. Yeah. There's always a lot of, you know, typical grandmother oh, pressure right. to right. eat. And and she was like, eat pasta, and you can grow right. <laughs> alone. I was I was the yeah. same. I was this, my, my mother was the same way. Here's some potatoes. You should <laughs> yeah. You get science. You get All right, strapped. so real quick, in summation, uh, we'll start with Drake. Give me a, a rundown of best Rocky to worst Rocky. We're not including Creed movies. No Creed, which we didn't even have time to touch on today. That's a whole separate episode, baby. Because like... because Rocky Four again, so great. That it spawned a Creed sequel. Right. Well, okay. iconic. Great is is a different word, but all right, go ahead. I like I like one, two, four, mm. and three. You're forgetting five. 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 I've, I know most people do. I've <laughs> I've forgotten that. And Balboa, I actually liked. Balboa was the Street Fighter one, right? No, no that, that was, was five. five. Balboa was the one where he was old, and there was the he did the young upcoming. One made based by Floyd Mayweather. Oh yeah, Balboa's the one with the giant street fight that lasts like. No, that's still five. That's still five. That's still five. Balboa that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Balboa's Speaking like of old, old man. guy, okay. he's an yeah. old guy. Yeah, who and the only reason he is competitive in that fight is because the champion at the time breaks his hand at the beginning of the fight. Right. Yeah. Coincidentally, I think if you can, if I can say, satisf from just pure viewer satisfaction, I really like Rocky too. Yeah. But it's more satisfied if you watch the series in order, if you know what came before. Right. It's true. It's got Rocky Two is one of my favorite Rocky moments, which is um, Adrian gives birth to their child, slips into a coma, which was very scary. Right. And uh, when she comes out, you know, but she was very against this rematch with Apollo. And when she slips out of the coma, Rocky's mid-training, and she looks at him, and, you know, he's like, look, if you don't want me to do this fight, I'll drop it. You know, she just got out of his coma. He's all freaked out. And she looks at him, she goes... Uh, you know what you can do for me? You can win. Right. And he's like, what'd you say? She goes, you can win. And, and if, then Mickey goes, what are we waiting for? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, I'll, I'll be, just one more second. If you yeah. think about it, every one of those is really about uh, Rocky's 
value and understanding of his wife in his life. Oh, sure. it is. And, and if you think about it, it's because of the way Sylvester Stone, I believe, started out. He's he's yeah. got a wife. They're broke. She believes in him. Mm-hmm. She lets him write this book, write this yeah, script. This book, right? There's a kid there. You know, there's a lot of trust for a young wife to say, "All right, we're in this terrible place." You Rocky know, this slum. Same way, Rocky Two's like and, they're poor at the end of Rocky One. And the great part. No, no, it's like, but she's still like, but she back to the like meat plate. All like, he, like, all, yeah. all, all he wants at the end of Rocky One is is, is Adrian. In Rocky Two, you have that great scene where you know they're together. Rocky Three is like that, and then Rocky Four. Really, the reason he wins the messages is because she says you can't do it, and he is proving her wrong and trying to prove his love back to him. So it's constantly, and then when she dies, it's like a shadow over the whole series. Yes, you know yeah, he's right. he. That is really like what his yeah. problem is. So yeah. it's really to me, it, it's him wanting to. And five's about his kid, really. I mean, yeah. it's about his five. Yeah. Five's really just about. His but kid. to me, that is. Yeah. I, I really think of the entire Rocky series, believe it or not, is like a love story. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, I'm so give, that's me. I'm going to give my ranking. First of all, I want to make clear to the audience, I do not support the Soviet Union. I just want to make that perfectly clear <laughs> sure. that I'm not sure. a Bolshevik. But... And at, at this point, that's like saying I don't I don't support the Ottoman Empire. Sure. That's, that's controversial. I, know, I bring back the Ottoman Empire. But <laughs> I would go, my order would probably be Rocky 1, obviously. Mm-hmm. Rocky 2. Um, this is how good it is. My favorite is Rocky 3, but this is in order of how good I think it is. Wow. 1, 2, Balboa. Ooh. 3, Four five. Oh, okay. So four narrowly beats out Rocky <laughs> just, just barely squeaks by. Lord. What's your what's your favorite Godfather? Three? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what was it edited out of three? Alright. So people at home, make your own decision. We gotta if know you yours, seen, Nick. We oh, gotta know your order. One, yeah. four, two, um one, four, two, uh Balboa. Thirty-five. Thank you for sharing that, Nick. Thank you so much, Nick. Right, was... Now we're going to go into the next one, which I believe will be mine. So Oof. get ready. Oh my! Here we go. Right. on. There's a lot of noise coming out of China these days. The coronavirus, the mass internment of the Muslim Uyghurs, the protests of pro-democracy advocates in Hong Kong. Indeed, the People's Republic of China seems to dominate the news on the foreign front. <laughs> Chinese Premier Xi Jinping and his Communist Party seem determined to assert China's global role as a superpower equal to the United States. But on January 11th, 2020, the People's Republic, or the PRC, was dealt a devastating blow that went largely unnoticed by the Western media. This was a blow struck not by an assassination, a missile strike, or a stock market crash, but instead by millions of ballots, collectively rejecting the will of the Chinese Communist Party. These ballots were cast on the island nation of Taiwan, a mere 80 miles from the Chinese coast. They delivered a decisive victory to incumbent President Tsai Ing-wen and a stubborn rebuke to the PRC. See, if you don't know, the island nation of Taiwan isn't actually called the island nation of Taiwan. Its official name is the Republic of China, a republic that happens to find itself in exile on the island of Taiwan, a republic that still claims to be the legitimate government of China. 
and a republic that has been in a cold war with the communist mainland for over 70 years. The official Taiwanese government is the remnants of the anti-communist nationalist government that fled to the island in 1949 following their loss in the Chinese Civil War. It was ruled brutally by Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang party for 30 years until his death in 1975. And in that time was recognized by most of the world as the one and only government of China. During that period, the United States signed a defense pact with Taiwan, promising to come to their aid if the mainland were to ever invade, seeking to reclaim what they saw as their lost, rebellious province. This pact still holds to this day, and serves as the sole reason for Taiwan's continued independence. After Shang's death, however, Taiwan would begin to democratize, with subsequent presidents gaining more and more power to the Legislative Assembly. Until, in 1996, Taiwan held their first presidential election, an election in which the ruling Kuomintang defeated the new opposition, the center-left Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. While Taiwan was undergoing its journey towards becoming a democratic republic, however, its place in the world was changing. Following Nixon's historic visit to the PRC in 1972, the world began to recognize the communists as the legitimate government of China, beginning with the UN stripping Taiwan of their seat, granting it instead to the communists. As the PRC began to end their long policy of isolationism, they would predicate trade agreements on the recognition of their government over Taiwan's. If you wanted Chinese goods, it would come at the cost of abandoning Taiwan. Soon, almost every nation in the world including the United States, recognized the communists as the sole legitimate Chinese government, and Taiwan found itself isolated and alone. Fast forward to January 2019, when Premier Xi Jinping, leader of the PRC, was quoted in saying that unification between the two sides of the strait was inevitable. He offered a diplomatic path to Taiwan first, a solution in which they would be allowed some provincial autonomy in return for recognizing Beijing as the true Chinese government. This is the same relationship Hong Kong and the PRC have, a relationship named by Beijing as one country, two systems. Xi then warned that if the Taiwanese would not agree to a diplomatic solution, he would not hesitate to invade, eager to unite China after decades of division. This stern announcement was followed by the eruption of protests in Hong Kong that stemmed from the encroachment of the Chinese Communist government upon the city's autonomy, and soon, the question of Taiwan's future had possessed the minds of the 24 million citizens of the island. President Tsai Ing-wen of the DPP, who until then had been facing low approval numbers due to her perceived poor handling of the economy, seized upon the moment. She called for Taiwan to stand strong and never give in to the communist demands. Soon, the presidential campaign for January 2020 began, and Tsai found herself up against Han Kuo-yu of the Kuomintang Party, who ran on a platform of moderately conservative economics and a closer relationship with the mainland. The PRC began to threaten war with Taiwan if Tsai won re-election, and worries over election interference, voter intimidation, and communist propaganda 
began to create a panic amongst the Taiwanese populace. Tsai positioned herself as the stalwart sentinel of Taiwanese sovereignty, while Han called for a negotiated cooling of relations, hoping that the status quo might still be salvaged. As January 11th approached, it looked increasingly as though Han would be swept into office, and the polls showed the race to be neck and neck. And then, the day came. Turnout was high, up to 75%, and the tiny island, left adrift in the limitless Pacific, shocked the world. Tsai was re-elected in the biggest landslide of the Republic's history, with 57% of the vote, a clear mandate that Taiwan would refuse to back down. And that the people of that small island, no bigger than New Hampshire, would stand against all the fire and fury the communists might throw at it, and that their democracy, young as it is, would face the hurricane with a stoic grimace, ready to go down fighting, screaming, scratching, bleeding, if need be. The future for Taiwan is unknowable and uncertain, but they'll refuse to have it dictated to them. No, they'll choose their own future, thank you very much. And that stubborn indignation, that of a free people refusing to be silenced, may yet lead to war. A war in which their call for help may be heated by the free world, resulting in a catastrophic global conflict between nuclear-armed superpowers. Or perhaps their call may be ignored, signaling that the time of democracies banding together to defend themselves from the onslaught of authoritarianism has ended, in which case the pesky citizens of Taiwan will simply be another speed bump on the way to China's rise to becoming the dominant power of the world. Indeed, on the fate of Taiwan hinges the fate of the world, and Taiwan isn't going quietly. My turn. I have immediate thoughts. Uh-huh. One, I love how similar we are. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> this is the kind of content you can expect. Folks. I'm just saying. Can we talk about the production values on that piece? Yeah. I mean, you got the entire symphony I with know. you. Yeah. It was just swung over to the FSU. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just asked him. Can you, hey, Vivaldi. Shocking. You want to just throw that out there? Wow, that was incredible like, music program. Yeah, PhD with backup. Uh-huh. PhD dissertation on Taiwanese futures uh-huh. with backup symphony. <laughs> sure. That's what I thought. I, I'm telling you, Seasons by Vivaldi is the best copyright-free music you could have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's how Vivaldi would want to be memorized. I know. Or, or nothing but I think that's on, his, free, that's on right. his tombstone, right? <laughs> <laughs> Royalty-free <laughs> podcast <laughs> backup. Take at will. He's <laughs> like, I sacrificed and sure. did everything I could for my music. <clears throat> but now that we're past that threshold matter. Sure. Um, you know, I knew we were going to get to this point in this series, and, and you know, I'm not terribly surprised that we're there. Um, right out of the get-go, <laughs> right out of the slot. <laughs> you're telling me things and, and, and telling me stories that uh, I don't know much about. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, uh, I learned a lot. Me too. Sure. Uh, I bet a lot of the listeners learned a lot, so mm-hmm. that's exciting. Sure. Um, thrilling to learn. And my first, my first reaction, I think, is uh, how it's so interesting how you know when you go to school and you learn the real genesis behind world wars. It's always something small like this. Right. Which is kind of scary. It is. Um, or something that, that, frankly, you know, has nothing to do with us. Right. And that's the, that's the terrifying part. And, you know, you could make the same motion with, like, Latvia or Estonia, which is a nation that's, you know, it's on the Baltic and it borders Russia and it used to be part of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, Putin, there's a significant Russian minority, you know, so it's not the same thing with Ukraine. So it's not unimaginable that mm-hmm. Russia could try to invade. But the problem is that Latvia is in NATO. So it's like, right. is the United States willing to create a nuclear holocaust over Latvia or Taiwan, yeah. which is like, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, are we willing to sacrifice that? And that's such a hard, and there's no real right answer to it. And, you know, you yeah. have to stand strong, I would think, but it's so, it's such a terrible thing to go to the American people and say, you know what, I'm asking you to send your boys and girls to die yeah. for the sovereignty of a country that isn't yours. Well, remember, this was so weird, even now, you know, Trump took office and, and I think, you know, the, the protocol was that it would be insulting for the the president of the United States to take a call from the president of Taiwan right, because yeah. China, who we're trying to appease so much, they don't recognize Taiwan as having a president who can call the president of the United States. Right. So, like if the governor of Xinjiang called. Or right. So, so everybody calls in. And, of course, the, the president of Taiwan calls Trump on like the second day he's there. And he's like not even sure where the telephone is. And he picks it up and says and starts having this conversation with him. And and, and everyone goes everyone goes nuts. And this was like a thing. This right. was like a big. We've forgotten about that by now. There's <laughs> no yeah. stuff that's gone. Maybe, so much has happened. <laughs> maybe it's my maybe it's my immigrant ancestors coming out as everyone in America is from immigrants. But I don't know why I would stay in Taiwan, because to me, to me, it's like you are Taiwan is this kid, like an analogy. There's a kid with a full lunch sack on a playground or a bunch of money in his pocket. And there's a huge giant bully who is really tempted to go over and just take everything from him. And right. I, I don't, you know, I don't know why. There's a lot of Taiwanese immigrants in the United States. But I think, I think the big reason for me would be it's like it's 26 million people. It's not, I mean, I made the comparison to Latvia, but Latvia has 600,000 people in it. Yeah. I mean, and I understand they're being patriotic. The like, Taiwanese say, "Look, well, this is we're, this is our country too." But what's the end game? Or does the Taiwanese government actually think that no. the Chinese government <laughs> they are going to be reinstalled right. in mainland China and take all that over? Well, no, but it's mm. like, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to give up and say, you know what? Actually, this terrible authoritarian no, regime that is—I mean, they're the, the the Uyghur Muslims that they're imprisoning, that are in concentration camps. They're you know they're killing doctors who are speaking out about the coronavirus. I mean, these are some awful human beings who are in charge of the People's Republic of China. That government is particularly terrible. They're like the worst parts of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union combined into one super awful state. And Taiwan can't just be like, you know what, these 26 million people, we're going to forsake their freedoms and just give up and put ourselves into that. But they make all of our stuff now. You know, they, yeah. I think I think they make the they make the equipment we're speaking into right now. Right. Uh, I've got a three hundred dollar Chinese television in my bedroom that's you know eighty it's inches tall or whatever right. it is. No, I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, I mean it's it's it, we've we've really you know created a deal with the devil. Is that your dog? That's my dog. Get that dog yeah, out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just close that door. Yeah, sure. Sherlock. Oh, oh, gently. I'm sorry. You ever no, been around sure. a microphone before? <laughs> <laughs> um, now we're screwed. Here, pause it. Did I stop? No, just press pause. Last time press, I did this. Just press pause. <laughs> Unpause. Yeah, here we go. Okay, now we're back on, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we've killed the dog. You buried him outside. Yeah, after the dog. No, we didn't kill the dog. We just <laughs> the door. <laughs> but it, it dawns upon me, not that I can, uh, I'm probably not the best person to predict what might happen, but, uh, I mean, politics aside, Trump seems to have run on a platform of, 
isolationism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for the most part. Because he's incompetent. Uh, I, <laughs> spoilers, I'm not a Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, fan of the Beijing I'm government. Not, right, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I cannot call myself in that camp of, of pro. Uh, Although, apparently, my Soviet Union comments might be taken out of context. Russia? No, he's I a, would not. Right, Russia. <laughs> Definitely I say bring not. Back, bring back <laughs> Russia. But China's in, uh, in You yeah, just want to fly no. the czar flag while you're at yeah, it? Yeah, 100%. Anyway. So, really, the solution to the problem is we need to send Rocky Balboa in right. Rocky right. Seven that's what I'm saying. to China. To China. Yes. That's, that's that's all we have to do, and they could, yeah. yeah. But you're right. Done. You know, you mentioned about like World War starting over this. Like World Wars started over less than this. Right. I mean, yeah. World War One, which kicked off the entire history of the world from from 1914. Right. Like, there's nothing that our world could be recognizable even a little bit if it wasn't for that war started because a duke, which is a guy who just happened to be born. You know, he just was like, oh, I happened to be like, oh, I'm a duke. Birthed by this woman, <laughs> right? Was killed because, you know, a Serbian wanted, you know, more of their land. And then right. all of a sudden, 18 million people died. And right. Hitler rose. And there was this, I mean, like, it's like, this is at least something substantial. You're like, this is a, a country that's threatened. Right. You know, that, that's a free democratic nation. I'm, I'm always a little concerned, though, about running to the defense of sometimes Asian nations that are threatened and, and getting involved in that. And I, I don't know. Like a Vietnam complex? I don't know. I mean, I, I think Taiwan is worth, is definitely, they need to be a friend of the United States and we need to be a friend of theirs. And I just, I'm very, I'm highly suspicious as you are of, of the motives of the Chinese government. So, but it's, it was a very interesting story. And I, I did not know a lot of what you told us. I did not realize about yeah, the election the, just happened. The election. And, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and I think it's great. Like 75% turnout is kind of insane if you think about it i mean because what's the standard in america 51 51 like you barely get half the population showing up. so i mean for midterms it's like 40 it's worse i mean it's like so if the russians are messing with american elections how badly do you think the chinese secret police are messing with the taiwanese elections i mean they're right off the shore it was like particularly terrible how much they were messing with them to the point in which there was a real concern that they would hack in and like fix the voting you know they would like straight up like sure. change the election results <laughs> like facebook right yeah <laughs> and you know there was all this deep concern because like you know I, maybe it was a little unfair to han kuaiu the the guy of the kuomintang which i think is funny was the party of shen kai-shek the anti-communist which has now become the communist appeasers which i think is kind of funny but hmm. aside from that historical irony he's he was not talking about it as if he should you know taiwan should fold to the chinese government he's just really wants to maintain the status quo because he thinks the goods that they get from china is more important hmm. than taking some artificial stand but Tsai is like you know it was partly political because she had mishandled the economy a little bit so you know taiwan had taken a bit of a dip so she was unpopular and she really hard took a hard stand and she was like if it comes down to it we will um <laughs> will die like for this we will go to nuclear war well i'll tell you how crazy they are uh, how this is such a they're at such odds in china with this because the very first time i remember when trey was six or seven years old and we got him a world map and we're looking at it and we put it on the ceiling of his of the bedroom you know and we'd kind of lie there put him to bed and we would look up at it and point the countries out and everything else and what, what i realized is is of course the map is made in china of the world okay i mean like everything it's made in china and, and you're looking at it and what you realize is when you actually look at a map of china on this map taiwan is not on the map really so the fact the, they, they, they qualify as part of china like right the island is there but, but the, oh it's just the same color as china yes but that's yeah. the that's the same macro type of police state you're talking about that literally some two dollar map that ends up they literally will not allow the map to list taiwan even existing you know, I mean, yeah. they don't let them in the Olympics. They're literally like, 
the, the China's like, if you want China to be in the Olympics, you cannot have Taiwan in the Olympics. That yeah. is the rule they set down. And it's like, it's everything. You cannot. And that was why it was such a crisis when you mentioned the Trump thing, because he picked up the phone, which technically is recognizing Taiwan as a gift right. from its separate. And it's like, there's so much. I mean, it's not like Trump knew that. I mean, Trump's an idiot. He did not understand, sorry. But he did not understand <laughs> that Ta- the history of Taiwan and China, which most people, to be fair, don't. I think he's figured out what NATO is, though. Yeah, he's not happy with them. Baby steps. Right. Yeah, <laughs> getting there. Um, not to be like Chapo Trap House or anything, but like there's a... There's a sorry, I don't think you know what that is. But um, nope. that, well, if it shot over your head, imagine how far up in the it's like a it's like a far left uh podcast that's like five guys who are like very they're like they're like pretty much communists that are just talking about that. Um but uh socialists minimally. Yeah. Um but yeah, I I'm I'm concerned about it because it's like the leadership is, is really crucial uh, for this kind of thing. I mean Kennedy and Cuba is a great example where it's like if that had been in the hands of a less deft leader, you know, the generals were telling Kennedy, especially Robert was the real hero in that story because, you know, the generals were all telling Kennedy, this is the Cuban Missile Crisis in case you don't know, mm-hmm. um, that we should just start bombing Cuba, like straight up. We need to start carpet bombing these nuclear missile sites before they can set them up and invade Cuba and just do this intent. That's what all the generals were saying. And these were the same generals that would later be the architects of the Vietnam War. And that's what they were really pushing. And Robert was very much saying, we can't do that. I'm not. He was looking at his brother and he was like, if we do that, it will lead to the annihilation of the United States and the Soviet Union. And, you know, Kennedy found a very deft compromise and he set up the blockade and he got the missiles off of Cuba in return for getting our missiles away from Turkey. And that was the hands of a really competent world leader. And it required, and, and, you know, Xi Jinping is someone who is determined like, like, mark my words, He by the time he dies, he is determined to see that China is, if not equal to the United States, superior to the United States. Mm-hmm. And the only way he sees of doing that is isolating us. He's allowing Russia to, to, to you know, he's, he's pushing Russia to, to interfere in our elections. He's pushing all these things. So, so do your, you guys are not really the same generation. You're, you're, you're brothers-in-law, but you're how far apart in age? Uh, how old are you? 15 years, right? 14, 15, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Nick, you're how old? 32. And Trey, you're 18 now. I said this right. Okay, yeah. so I'm trying to give you an idea to go back to the Rocky. When sure. when I was Trey's your age, right. it was like, you know how China is overwhelming and we have this this fear that they're going to somehow take over the world? Sure. Yeah. But we buy things from them. Right. Russia was a pure military state. It was like a supervillain. <laughs> yeah. They didn't make anything. You didn't buy anything from them. But that seems better to me. They had different money. And they were just constantly on a on a military stance at all times, to the point that it was hysterical. And so when you saw someone like Rocky kind of take on this monolithic idea, you know, like Drago was like there's not a Chinese Drago. You right. know you know what I mean? Drago right. was the personification of, of what we thought we were fighting for. Like the goofy I will break you. <laughs> right. Yeah. But but it's... the diff- the difference is, is Trey, I think you hit on it. The difference between standing up we are going to have to stand up to china at some point just and, like but that makes us suffer i know like for but, us to yeah. start to stand up against yeah. the soviet union that was nothing that, i mean it yeah. was nothing but it's not like we were losing some no economic because we we, doing that. we made everything then right. and, and and the difference between kennedy and trump is is really an interesting parallel for me with that because we are going to have to stand up to china and we should be standing up to them now and kennedy stood up to khrushchev and the difference is, is the men i mean one made up an excuse to dodge the draft. The other one was an actual war hero in World War II who had seen combat and understood what that was. One of them surrounded himself with 
nobodies. I mean, he. I mean, I think Trump believes he literally is the smartest person he knows. I don't know. Mike Pompeo is a policy genius. In case you didn't. No, no. But I mean, he. He. I mean, and there's a difference. And Kennedy literally scoured every place he could find for the best. Sure. People around him, and and I think, and both of them actually had grown up similarly. Both of them had extremely wealthy fathers who made them, but one, you know, and, and they both, frankly, had terrible personal lives. Yeah, from a, from, from a, well, from, no, but from a morality standpoint, they both, they, you know, you could make the argument that, they, but when it came down to character and experience, that's why What's it's so important. Judgment. I think. I think honestly, yeah, it's like I agree. I, I mean, I think Kennedy. You know, for all that people throw at him because, you know, he was like a daddy's boy and like his dad kind of set up a lot of his life for him. Sounds familiar. Right. But Kennedy was also really smart and really empathetic to people. Well, he like, traveled the world. He understood things. Right, and, right. But, but again, he's a he had history fan. Yeah, like, yeah. like he understood that. But like, he had he had been in combat. He had actually saved people. He was, you know, and it's to, and so that I think is the big worry about what's going to be happening in the future. We're going to have leaders that. Uh, are going to be able to understand their place in history and stand up to some of these forces that need to be stood up to. Because really what could have happened is, is the Soviet Union, frankly, could have taken over South America. They could have taken, they took over Cuba. They could have taken right. over South America. They could have literally, in a way, surrounded us. That's and that's Yeah, no, I mean, and that's and <laughs> mm-hmm. that's that's the way they were going. And China is becoming influential like that all over. And we need to be doing something besides, you know, to right. me, making sure. So I'm going to do a, a fun thought experiment for our last uh, three minutes here for you guys. Go. You are president of the United States, right? Yeah. You're in Donald Trump's position. Oof. And China is going to invade Taiwan. They've announced we're invading Taiwan. It's going to happen. And Taiwan says, honor our defense treaty, or, you know, and that's what they say. You're president. What do you do? I'm going to go Nick first, and then I'll go to, to the This is what strikes me, is that, and you said it at the very beginning of the segment, was that there's no right answer. Because let's just game it out. As somebody always says, let's game it out. <laughs> um, we honor the defense treaty. Sure. We say, you know what? We're going to stand up for democracy, for democracy um, as an ideal that the world should embrace and that you know we support. And you know the big danger there is we kick off World War Three, right? Is that? And I ask you guys this genu- genuinely: Is that a realistic possibility if we defend Taiwan? Oh, definitely. Because then it's. China versus America, and more nuclear armed superpowers. World War Three, right? Okay. Yeah. Or, and this, frankly, I, I think seems like the more realistic, you know, the chances of the other thing happening are more likely. Which is, we don't do that. Um, the one, the one little piece of knowledge I have about the situation is, frankly, what I saw on ESPN, right? Which was, you know, all the sports figures, mostly basketball and NBA people. Um, started tweeting their defenses of right. China, right? <laughs> no, of the Hong Kong. Well, yeah, right. But they got fired. Remember, it was like a big deal. And the NBA came down. They were like, "No, don't do that." Right. Even though, and the way ESPN uh, portrayed it was very interesting because it was like, "Well, maybe they might have a point, but uh, NBA makes so much money in China. Yeah. So, I mean, they are the the memorial they held for Kobe Bryant was." crazy there's like a 50 foot long mural of kobe bryant in beijing right now i'm I'm just so tired of that yeah i'm so tired of that that we don't want to offend some terrible person because we can make money if we don't right it feels i'm just tired of american like it feels and you know what we invented in the nba kobe bryant's an american if the chinese want to have a competitive basketball league and they don't like the fact that we let our players and our coaches say what they want to say and this is the united states then i I think that i think the nba should be ashamed of themselves that was the same that was the same thing i mean this is like another going with your with like a sports analysis, there was an mm-hmm. esports problem where it was um, 
where basically there was a competitive. I'm not going to go into the details because you don't know what it is, but like it was a, yeah. no offense, but um, yeah, yeah it, I'll it, just sit over here on the side. No, <laughs> it was, there was a competitive esports event that was going on. That was a South Korean game, and the winner of, or it might have been an American company. I think it actually was an American company, but it was being held in South Korea. And mm-hmm. It was an American game, and the winner, when he won, you get like a little speech, and he won like a million dollars, and and he said, "I support the people in Hong Kong." Okay. And they revoked his win. <laughs> and they took away his million dollars, and they banned him from play. And it's an American so what, company. Yeah. And right. Like, so what's your so many Chinese people who watch that? What's right. your What's your bottom line? So the the person that we've elected to make this decision is has run on on a largely isolationist platform, mm-hmm. and clearly is very concerned about the economy. Um, I'm not saying this is what I would do. I'm not even sure what I would do, but I'm saying. If Trump's the guy making the call, then I think it's pretty clear what his call is going to be. I think I think the biggest thing is we forget what power we have, which is they are the manufacturer of the world, but we are the customer of what they are. And, the and anyone that's anyone that's economy. anyone that's ever run a business knows that if the customer is always right, you want to do everything you can to accommodate them. And I don't think we use that power enough. And I mean, it could be something as simple as a diplomatic solution where we go to the manufacturing base and say, you know, we're leaving China. You're out. We're all coming back home. I don't know, but. It's got to be something. That I think that's the only thing that they're going to understand. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm a supporter of free trade. I'm not sure if I get all on board with that. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, and I get that. But I think we, us standing up to China is is crucial because we're ceding our power as, uh, the, as, the, as, the, as the number one. I mean, we had 20 years of time in which we were the only superpower in the world. That's never happened before, ever. Mm-hmm. In the history of mankind, has there only been one superpower ever, and we just botched the job. Well, like we, I mean, we had that opportunity to keep it, and I think that takes moral leadership, that takes you know real, solid, and understanding of, of global politics and of history, and I think Bush and I think that uh, Trump have done a terrible job of of maintaining that and as a result we have lost that to china now and we have to compete with china we have to stop pretending like they're botswana i mean they're an actual they're a country that can challenge us and if it comes down to it we have to make sure that we're ready okay well that was really that was a very thought-provoking segment absolutely that was really good nice job well produced however i will tell you my final segment at least the two of yours were somewhat related. Uh-huh. Mine is I'm ready, completely not related. All right. <laughs> and let's get ready for number three, my Padre, and here we go. All right. Been a while since you wrote an actual thank you note. Here's a small note for a big gift. A gift, say, from a whole country to the world. So what's the French gift to mankind? The Eiffel Tower? Brie? Nope. We had friends, brothers who owned a huge hunting preserve in South Carolina tucked into the snake-infested, muddy country around Florence. They left their lives in offices and operating rooms several times a year and slept in bunkhouses and drove old jeeps through the woods. They shot deer and quail year-round whenever they felt like it. They grew okra and collards and squash in a quarter-acre garden, vegetables which they ate with venison around a giant fire pit filled each night with wooden pallets soaked in lamp fuel. They had freezers full of deer heads with the antlers still attached, eyes like gloomy blue stars, open and forever watching the last thing they would ever see before the shot. They kept inviting us. We kept making excuses. Then it became awkward. They invited us again on Father's Day weekend. We'll leave on Friday and drive up. We'll be there before sunset. We should go. We accepted and we went. 
Arriving road-weary, we saw the property in full for the first time. It was vast, having once been four working farms. Millions of loblolly pines now grew in straight rows in every direction, destined for paper towel and pencil factories. Our friends had pulled down the fences, dammed the creeks, and erected spindly deer stands in meadows 200 yards square, with solar panels on the roofs to power the beer fridges and Wi-Fi. When we arrived, Rutt, the patriarch, met us halfway up the mile-long shell driveway that wound like a sleeping white snake off the paved blacktop. He was standing up in the front seat of a restored 1951 Willys Jeep. He waved us up the drive and pulled in behind us as we passed. Rutt looked like a better-drawn version of his sons, who were waiting for us at the house. Our friends rejoiced when they saw us, slightly drunk and excited to show us around. There are the woods. Look at that sunset. There's the fire pit. There's the skeet range. We'll go fishing tomorrow. Are you hungry? Have a beer. You'll sleep there, Rutt said, pointing at a small, well-painted cabin. There's hot water and great beds. Drop your bags up there. Supper's coming. Watch for snakes on the walk back. Settled in, we ate fish fillets fried in margarine and okra and rice and sat around the fire pit as the caretakers threw logs and trash and old Christmas trees into the fire. The flame shot 30, 40, then 50 feet high, illuminating the tree line 70 yards away in spotlight blasts. That's when I saw the dog. It looked like the yellow labs that lived in my neighborhood when I was a boy, but much dirtier and bone-weary, weaving between the pines in the distance, maybe 400 feet away. I knew the slumping stroll of the breed, friendly but searching. I tracked the dog in the distance. He went in and out of the tree line. I wondered who he belonged to. The dog sat across the field, a yellow smear, barely visible, no collar. Rudd asked a caretaker for a beer, and when it was presented, he glanced almost imperceptibly towards the smear. I cannot say exactly when I heard the shot, but I heard it soon after, and I saw the silhouette beforehand, the caretaker slow on his heels, making his roundabout way to the dog in the distance. The dog, head down and cautious, waiting on him. The small movement from the holster, the half-extended arm, the snap of the shot, the dog hissing from across the meadow, then thumping to the grass the caretaker walking back. Did he shoot him? I interrupted. What was that? Rutt and our friend stopped talking and laughing, all at once contemplating my question. Yeah, it was a shot, the younger one said. Sounds like they put him down. Strays carry rabies, you know. This did not sit well, but we sat. We did not follow up. We looked at each other with questions we did not ask and begged off to bed. Again, awkward watching for the snakes, and talked about it until we fell asleep. Gunfire woke us up, 30-06 rounds fired into the air at dawn, a call to breakfast, and the day filled with treks into the woods over rutted roads. The fire pit was going now, only in reverse. Six turned to nine, sundown and then up, breakfast with eggs again fried in margarine, with toast, bacon, and hash, industrial orange juice the wrong color, like a traffic cone. Red appeared, coffee high, smelling like campfire. Come with me. This was to us, and he walked past. The jeep awaited. Into the woods. 
We climbed in and up and settled into the green vinyl of the seats. No belts. He grinded into second from a stop, clutch stuttering. The green flew by. After the road, and then the dirt, and then the ruts, we came to the house. Or rather, what had been a house once, during its time long ago. We stopped in front, the weeds as high as the windows, the roof twisted 20 degrees from some storm no one remembered. All the windows were blown out of their frames. Grass grew in the front parlor. Wanted to show you something about last night, said Rut, about the dog. This is the Kerwin place. Knew it well when I was young. We glanced at each other across the seats, but Rut was on, and then gone, going back. The Kerwin boys were hard. They were orphans, when the oldest, Shifley, was only 19. Their mama died of something female. Their father got drunk and never woke up. My daddy helped bury him. Harry Kerwin was the middle one. I knew him in grammar school, but he was out by grade six. Kirby was the baby. Shifley became the man. He worked and his brothers ran wild. My mother would drop by with her friends sometimes with baskets of sandwiches and clean socks, fascinated by the filth. Kirby was soft for dogs. He'd meet a stray in the woods and try to take it home, feed it a school sandwich out of his sack, give them names. Shifley would meet him at the door and would say no. There was no money for a dog. Kirby grew bigger than his brothers, bigger than anyone around for that matter, but he stayed soft. He'd pet any dog he found. Two days after his 18th birthday, he got bit. Never happened before with the dog that did it. He'd fed it a hundred times. The dog lived in the woods near where Kirby worked. This time, he bit him, right in the webbing of his left hand. Kirby saw the dog's black eyes when he did it. Eyes blind and bottomless. He probably didn't know what to do. He probably thought the old dog was just upset. He hid his hand from his brothers for three days, then a week. He ran a fever. He couldn't work. He'd lie in bed and yell at his brothers. He couldn't stand the light. They tried to give him water and he threw the glass at them. Boy had rabies, said Rut. I looked up. Rabies, all right, all right, okay, well, he'd get a shot. No shot. This was here, in 1931. No doctor, no hospital, no shot. He was here. He was done, 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 done. So they did the cure. They pulled the door off the boy's room, sawed the bottom out of it, so there was a kind of a slot at the bottom, small enough to pass a food tray through. Then they put it back on the hinges. They took the furniture out of his room and left only the mattress. They stripped him down and laid him, caked with fever sweat, and staring at them with his own black bottomless eyes. Then they nailed the door shut and waited. Kirby broke down quickly. He woke and raged on the other side of the door. He couldn't speak, but his brothers had to listen to him slam his head against the door, sucking deeply in through his closing throat. He would get quiet, then loud. They tried to slide some food under the door, but he growled and spat and kicked it back through the slot. They didn't want to get bit, and if they did, it would be them in the room with a mattress. It had taken over their little brother, their mother's baby. The fourth night, there was quiet. That's when they knew they had to kill him. Later, after I researched this tale, I realized they were right. Of the millions of people who have contracted rabies, only a tiny handful are known to have survived. A fraction of a fraction of a shadow of a percent. The rest died swallowing their tongue, gnashing and biting anyone around them, their throats constricted by the virus, screaming a guttural roar. Their brains and meninges, the lining of their spines, were literally burning inside their skin. 
cooking the humanity out of them and turning them into their primitive shadow, the beast we always carry inside of us, each of us. Rabies caused about 17,400 human deaths worldwide in 2015. Human rabies cases in the United States are very rare, with only one to three cases reported annually. In 1911, though, 20 years before our story, the rates were more than one death every three days. Few people had access to vaccines, and people in rural areas could only hope that the end would come quickly at the hands of people that loved them. Is there ultimately a more fearsome disease than rabies, which turns the victims into animals and their loved ones into murderers? Enter French scientist Louis Pasteur. In the sunset of the 19th century, the French microbiologist and genius had already discovered that raising the temperature of milk could kill the bacillus that caused tuberculosis, brosiolus, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and Q fever. He also figured out a way to kill the harmful bacteria Salmonella, Listeria, Ysserina, Campobacter, Staphylococcus, and E. coli. Before pasteurization, thousands of people died each year from consuming raw milk. Pasteur then turned his attention to rabies and developed a vaccine. By 1885, four children from the United States went to Pasteur's laboratory to be inoculated. In 1886, he treated 350 people, of which only one developed rabies. This was a cure for sure, but it took another 50 years before it would reach reliably into the rural areas like my friend's farm in South Carolina. As he snarled weakly from the floor, they entered the room, grasped the mattress, and held it in front of them, advancing on his twisted body, contracted in agony. When they were almost next to him, they saw his head suddenly swivel towards them with a rage they'd never seen in their giant, gentle little brother. They moved as one, bulldozing him off his feet and onto the floor, protected by the mattress beneath him. They pressed upon his weakened body, and they felt him thrash underneath, just six inches of steel coil and scratchy cotton batting between them. Shifley began to cry as he pressed down. Harry silent, his eyes closed, his feet bracing him atop the mattress holding his lost brother. After ninety seconds, there was peace. They dared not even check underneath for another two minutes. Finally, it was Harry who spoke. Let's get him up, Shifley. Let's take him home. He's done now. They walked into town, met the sheriff, and told him what happened. He drove them back to their home and saw the door and the mattress and Shipley's twisted, broken form. He helped them bury the boy in the backyard. Rudd showed me his gravestone, overrun with kudzu and juniper. We relax in our modern lives, returning texts and fussing with the air conditioning. We expect middle age. We feel entitled to happiness and the luxury of ease. Rabies seems quaint now, something dogs used to get and having nothing to do with us anymore. Even today, however, in parts of the world uncovered by Wi-Fi and the void of coffee shops, the monster still lurks. And then there's this. Even today, according to the protocols established by the World Health Organization, if a disabled or blind adult, our child, is found to have been sleeping in a room in which a bat is found, it should be assumed that he's been bitten, and that person should undergo the pasture cure. This is, of course, the origin of the vampire story of bats and biting monsters that infect others, evil, menacing beings who are afraid of water and the sun. Thank you, France. You gave us Louis Pasteur. Thank you for our easy lives with our dogs and our fur babies, free from fear. Thank you for freeing us from fever 
from infection from the monster. Thank you for this gift. Good God. <laughs> it's a little different. I don't know. You're very descriptive. You should. That was like the perfect prologue to a book. I yeah. could not have thought of a That's, better. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a story that, uh, that's a true story. I was told that story by, by friends of ours. I was there. How do I not remember that? I don't remember any He of didn't. This was a trip that Trey and I and Amy took. I was young. I was he like, was young. He was like six or seven years old, and we, we took him up there, and uh, this happened, and, and I, this is the owner of a farm, and he took me up the next day in, in his Jeep to explain. He actually took me to that house. He's the racist guy who ruined Disney World. Yeah, and and it uh, it just really never uh, it never left me, you know, That's for some quite reason. The story. The story. Yeah. I that was the, I liked the little circular storytelling thing you did with the with the yeah. France. I didn't see that coming. Oh, that yeah. was that was very nice. I appreciate that. <laughs> I couldn't help but think the entire time to emphasize your point that you know rabies goes you know is now like a thing that we don't even think about. Right. If if anybody remembers the episode from The Office. Michael Scott's 5K for rabies fun yeah. ride. <laughs> right, exactly. He really cares. He does. Michael I mean, Scott is who needs to be there. Right. Seriously. You're right. That's actually played as a joke. That's so funny. It is. To think right. About that. It's literally played as a joke. It's like, oh, rabies. Like, how many people have rabies? Right. Yeah. And like, that's the most, that is literally, I don't think I'll ever recover from hearing that story. I think you've oh. permanently broken me. That <laughs> was like such a deep and terrible thing that you oh, just that's, said. Yeah. Even, even Jim in that episode is like, we're running a race for a disease. That's been cured. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, you know, in um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the, mm -hmm. with Gregory Peck, the movie. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but in the middle, there's a rabid dog that walks in the middle of town, and everybody right. runs away in fear. Right. And, he, and finally, Scout, his daughter, yeah. gets, you know, respects her father because he shoots the dog, right. even yeah. though he has terrible vision. You know? Snipes him. Mm -hmm. And that's all, yeah. And so it's... That's quite a book. Yeah. It's just, I've never forgotten the story, and it seemed like a good way to... I don't know. I know it was a little different than the other ones, but it's been, oh, I thought it was a good yeah, format. Yeah, well, I was happy with it. <laughs> yeah. I have so many thoughts. Um, it's hard to know where to begin. This is probably, it's funny, when you when you first started and you said, you know, what is France's gift to America? <laughs> You're thinking. And you said Brie, and I was like, obviously. Yes, I me I too. Right, me but too. yeah, Louis Pasteur. Sure. Um, also, South Carolina. The yeah. interesting thing to me is, you know, you're telling there's two stories happening, one in relatively recent day. Right. And then one, you know, in the 1930s. Yeah. That seems like, you know, it's such a uh, it's such a barbaric time. Yeah. I mean, they're 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 literally smothering their own brother. Right. I mean, that's so dramatically. It's not even like it's a it's like a doctor who's doing it. I mean, this is literally but the like, the part about the sheriff helping right. helping yeah. bury the son. Yeah. That is a thing that if the if you it had was, rabies and the kid was in your house with rabies, a member of your family, you had a kind of an obligation. You could either tie the person down mm -hmm. and have them suffer forever. But this was like a thing that they would be suffocated with a mattress, and that's a true story that the sheriff helped bury the yeah. son. You think you know? about it, it's like you know. We take a lot for granted, even like the stuff that's around the story. Like, where's child protective services in the fact right. that these are just orphans living in the yeah. woods? Like, you're telling yeah. me that what they're just like? How do they get these the meats for their sandwiches? Like, what are they doing? Are they hunting for it? Or are they like? Yeah, yeah. I like, mean, they're they're just barely getting by, and they're in the woods. Yeah. The interesting part were the parallels to me. The parallels between um, the environment near Florence, South Carolina, in 1930. <laughs> 
and uh, the environment in Florence, South Carolina today. Right, right, you right. Know, very much the same. Y'all, y'all were sleeping on cots. Yep. For for a lack of a better term, but yep. there was hot water. There was hot water. But you're still shooting the dog dead for fear of rabies. You are, and and the the sad thing is, is we're you know I have a dog now that Traeger up with and everybody has a the dog. The one we just killed outside. Right, the one that, no, the one that you, you right. suggested we did. But yeah. the bottom line is, is we have such an ease now. There's a whole, you know, there's Chewy.com. We have such an ease. You know, know, we it, got BarkBox. You, you got know. BarkBox, right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and dogs were very, they well, yeah, were. We expect dogs to live 12 years. But we also. By a car, we're like, we're like, we expect them to live 12 years and we love them and we are and, with and, them and we, I, I'm not a dog killer. That's totally a joke. I, I obviously, but like I am a. <laughs> sure. I'm a huge dog person, like with my right. from my heart and soul, and I'm like the idea that your dog, you have to worry about your yeah, dog, like right. actually contracting rabies, and then you have to put your dog. I mean, that's a joke in old yellers, and that, that would right. break my heart. Yeah, and old yellers like is another example. Like, right. well, well, not only yeah. that though, but yeah, we have like anthropomorphized our animals because it's been three generations since a stray dog in America was something to be really feared. Right. And I asked, you know, I asked him about that when I went up there. I said, "Where are all these dogs coming from?" And he says. People take the dogs out. They have a dog. They get tired of the dog, and they abandon the dog in the woods. And so, who does that? Who actually abandons dogs? He, like they say, and, and he has this big farm, and they would constantly be in the woods because they they're more they're attuned to humans. You know, they're not feral, but they're but they get rabies, and then they end up attacking somebody. We bred them to be like that. It's almost unfair because mm-hmm. I mean, we've literally taken the natural evolution of like a wolf, and over thousands of years, we've made it so that they can't really live without human beings, and now. You know, if we abandon them, it's like we're taking an animal that can't. But it's, that, it, it's interesting how that changes, though, from country to country. Like, I remember there was a time um, going back to my cousins when my cousin's best friend was from Jamaica. And so right. we would go like we went to Jamaica and we would stay at his dad's house. And the thing, one of the things that struck me about Jamaica is that there are still stray dogs everywhere. Yep. Italy, too. I think Italy, I think too. Yeah. Um, but they're just, I mean, stray dogs living in, you know, living outside. Communities, in packs. In packs. Yeah. It was it was wild to see. And those, yeah, and those are, and that, it used to be like that in America just not too long ago. And and we have a whole pet culture now which exists <laughs> solely because, because you got to think about it. We have breeds that people are afraid of, like pit bulls. You know, there's a joke yeah. about that. But it used to be people were afraid of stray dogs and stray dogs had to be put down because this was a very real fear because if you know a pit bull attacks you it can kill you but any stray dog can give you rabies and i thought that the frankly the bat thing yeah that clearly if you just look at it you've got you see how you go from a bat bite somebody in the middle ages they end up turning into this right. fangy animal that wants to bite people, right? right? That right. seems crazy. That is that well, I mean, like, is that is afraid of afraid of sun and afraid of water. Right. That's yeah. the other describing thing. is a zombie. I mean, like the way you're talking about, like I mean, a vampire. Not to be disrespectful. No, no, a vampire. Yeah. yeah. Not to be disrespectful. I know, but I'm saying like to, not to be disrespectful to to people who have had rabies and especially to you know that story and that is truly heartbreaking. But mm-hmm. like, you know, the original idea of vampires was that there would be the vampire which was like a supernatural being mm-hmm. that would bite somebody and they would turn into like a zombie like a dumb uh person who would like do the bidding of a vampire and they were right. like and and that in what you're describing is really like a rabies victim and it's so easy to see that yeah and you know it's i think for now where all these high and mighty people were like how could people ever come to these superstitions that are so dumb mm-hmm. of like vampires and then you see this and you're like Nature's pretty metal. Like well, nature's going to do yeah, the, yeah. Here's, here's the scary part about it, too, that I read that really does vampire it up, if you think about it. the You are afraid. Somehow the disease has evolved where when you get it, you are afraid of water. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So you're hydrophobic. Are you really? Yeah, you're actually afraid of water. So if the if the victim is presented with a glass mm-hmm. of water, they literally they 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 scream and they throw it away. However, this is the scary part. They have a hyper stimulation of their saliva glands during this process. So they are constantly producing saliva. And we can't quite figure out, or the scientists are never going to figure out how the vaccine, I mean, how the virus has said, whatever happens, don't let the host drink water because that will eliminate the disease. So in other words, do you mm-hmm. see what I mean? Because the transmission is through the bite. It's oh, through right. the bite yeah. in uh, a dog or a human being. Oh, God. So, oh, so it's like it's conscious. It's, it's, it's conscious the fact that, it, that it's in order to get to the next host, it's got to stimulate the saliva glands, not allow water to be entered into, and to then bite someone. That's pretty like wild. one of the most terrifying things. Now you, and you imagine that. So it, that that to me was one of the great ma- milestones, and I just I think how different our society would be, and so I wanted to share it with so you the guys. Frenchies yeah. have done at least one good thing. Well, yeah. Cool. Well, there's brie. Yeah. Right. There's Two. that. There <laughs> yeah. There's always so. brie. That's that is. I don't I don't remember that at all. How do I not remember that? Well, you me? weren't you you were so little that he didn't. He didn't want to take you there. He saw that it had disturbed your mother and I. Sure, that, the, dog, the, dog. the dog. You didn't see the dog. I didn't see the dog. You didn't see the dog at all. I don't he that. was very subtle. He literally just kind of looked over just what I said, and and we saw it, and your mom and I saw it, but you never noticed it. It was just a twenty-two that he shot sure. him with, and there was a big roaring fire, so you just didn't notice it. And he right. knew that this had upset us. It was like this was an issue. You know, we didn't want to be rude about it, right. but, and so he said, "Come on, I want to take you and show you why." Better than telling you about rabies, I want to show you what rabies has has done in my lifetime because he was alive during that story. So and you know what? You know, but but just to but like it had been cured. It had been cured, but the point is, is that it wasn't until the mid nineteen sixties that people had available, reliable rabies vaccinations in hospitals and and you know even today that area of the country is very rural. And if you're you yeah. have to understand by the t- the bad part about rabies is is by the time you develop symptoms, you're incurable. Oh. You have to be bitten, and then you, there's about a two or three day period where you have got to get the treatment, or you're done. Okay. So it's it's a it's a real you know a point of no return type of disease. Wow. You know that you know this is a great story because it, it really demonstrates the power of stories. I think uh, more than anything else. I mean, we had a good time talking about Taiwan and Rocky, but I mean, yeah, there's a distinctness to like how this shapes us because like that that story that you just told has changed i mean that has obviously fundamentally changed the view of the brothers in that story whatever kids they have right it's changed rut it's changed the guy who shot the dog it's changed you and now it's changed us and it's gonna change anyone who listened and it's like that tells us not only just to appreciate but like how brutal life was even you know just a little while 90 ago. years ago right i mean that 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 i mean it that sounds like they're living in the dark ages like the, what you're describing, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, and, and and you know, it's crazy to me because you know, especially if you like history, and you study back, and you're like, you think of, you know, the ancient Greeks or the Romans, or even like, you know, Civil War times in the United States or the Victorian era, and like we think of them as civilized and living some comparable lives to ourselves in some way, even if it's different, but it's 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 like unimaginable how different their lives were. Yeah, and there's still a lot of as Nick said, there's still a lot of. Uh, millions of people still live in a lot of these types of conditions where they don't have the basic vaccinations and their lives. You know, most of the things we tend to worry about, we don't worry about pandemics. We don't worry about, you know, a lot of things like that because we, we fill our lives with a lot of silliness, you know, and things that, that aren't life and death and we don't have to make those decisions. And then we kind of create this alternate morality like it's always wrong to shoot a dog. Right. 
And, you know, that's what it's obvious. It's like, the, no, the thing is, is that nobody wants to shoot a dog and it's a terrible thing to have to shoot a dog. But there is there is nature. It's like a weird euthanasia argument, though. Yeah. Like, uh, it's funny. I think I know that sounds strange, but like, <laughs> but like, you know, if we're bringing euthanasia into this. Whoa, well, I don't think it, we were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, 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 you guys have brought euthanasia. Like, this, like it's we're, yeah. we're steering no, away from right. the controversial right. topics Wait, in this podcast. Right, yeah. but, no, but legitimately, it's like you, they, they did euthanasia. They, I mean, in a, in a brutal, and, and, and a brutal well, old-fashioned be, and, way. And, and, the, and, the, and they loved them. They loved him. Right. And, and they knew, and that, yeah. And that know. makes you think, like, even that current argument, like, like even if it's, like, a religious mm-hmm. argument that's, like, you know, we cannot you do euthanasia because it's wrong, you know, because according to the Bible or according to our moral understanding or that we're better than that at this point, we mm-hmm. shouldn't do euthanasia. Like, back then, people were like, he's sick. We don't have, we cannot take care of this person. He's suffering. We just have to kill them. And like, that is the argument that is kind of, it's just crazy to think about how brutal that is where it's it's like, there's no, I mean, they used to abandon babies if they couldn't take care of them. I mean, mean, they would just abandon, like infanticide. Yeah, I've lived with that story for 10 years and I have never, I've always thought how terrible it would be to have to do that. But, you know, it it was done by someone who loved him. Yeah. And, you know. It is a pro-euthanasia argument. Because if you think about it, and here's what always bugs me about the, the euthanasia argument, which, frankly, it's it's the same as the abortion argument. Not that I'm I'm not saying I am pro or against any yeah, of Nick, this. Yeah, just say this right. I'm not. Right. I'm not. But everybody always jumps to the morality in the argument. It's wrong to kill somebody as opposed to having them die naturally, or it's wrong to abort a baby as opposed to having it. But the arguments that are made that create the laws that govern these issues are not based on morality or religion. They're based on taxes. The government has an interest in this person as a taxpayer, which is why the, legisl- the legislation's been created to make euthanasia illegal. Right. But is it so bad in this case? I mean, is it? it, it what's the... Well, what's, it's, just, it's just horrible. It's one of those things where it's like, it feels so morally gray because even if you look at it from the perspective of what's probably right, which is to kill the, the, the your brother, yeah. it's still horrible. Like, no, there's no part about it where no, you look at it and you're no. like, "Man, this is the right choice." Like, you never feel good about yourself. And I'll, and I'll tell you, no. when you saw the when you saw the the farmhouse, uh, I don't even know if I described it as as gloomily as it was. It did look like some terrible, unmistakable what thing. You know what happened, happened to brothers? Did no. they end up having kids? No, or? I think they. I don't know if they moved away or what they did, but it's it was it's something. I stood there for a long time and 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 looked at it. So I wouldn't want to go in that room again. Yeah, no. Haunted. <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. Well, anyway, I know it was probably maybe it was a downer, but it was just something oh, it was right. a story that I wanted to tell and uh, sure. you know, well, yeah. we we gave full, you know, full full disclosure. <laughs> sure. There would be Freedom. funny stories, right. happy stories, Who knows, serious right? stories, right? Stories. Maybe I'll bring my funny back expect. on the next episode. Yeah, I don't you know. know. Whatever we want to do is a flexible podcast. Well, we hope uh, we hope you guys have enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. Heck yeah, this was our first episode of um, To Be Brief. and uh, As Nick said, we weren't. Uh, <laughs> no. no briefness was necessary yeah. in this podcast. Um, so let's just go round table one more time and just uh, reintroduce ourselves. and then. Nick Castellano, uh, pro-Rocky. Um... Pro-bad Rocky is what you say. <laughs> Pro-worst Rocky. Pro-Rocky um, and... and Obviously not brief in any way, shape, or form, but uh, just glad to be here. And uh, frankly, I'm ready to learn some new things from these two. Yeah, so. me too. I'm I'm looking forward. I'm Drake Buckman. I'm very proud of of these efforts, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what these guys have got in store. 
coming up, and I'm also very pro Rocky and pro Brie and anti anti rabies. <laughs> yeah, I think that's guys. that's my big takeaway. Yeah. And Drake Buckman no. anti rabies. We stand with Michael Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I am Trent Buckman. I would like to reiterate once a time, once upon a time, <laughs> once upon a time, once again, that I am uh, I am anti-Soviet. Uh-huh. He's, he's I'm also pro-Italian. I would like to bring up that garlic <laughs> comment one more time. Yeah, I, so, I don't really get that. Sure. Right? Yeah, no, it's absolute pro-Italian. Brother-in-law's Italian. He eats but, more meatballs than I do. Right. Yeah, he does. I have a nothing but love. It was a, just a friendly, a friendly racist jib. Um, but. Our jibe. That's a jib? <laughs> yeah. We're gonna start... a, jib's, a jib's a sail My brain's on a boat. A, a jib's a small I'm sail sorry. on a boat. We're going to yeah. stop recording. Is it called me a dago? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Welcome to our first episode. Um, and we will see you next month. All right, guys. We're out. Nice.